from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. One of the most rewarding things in my life is to take my dog Phoebe on long walks around my neighborhood. I suppose that defines me as an old man, but most of the people who know me aren't surprised by that. One thing I noticed about my dog is the longer we walk, the more she poops. Like if we walk for 10 minutes, she will poop twice. If I extend it to 20 minutes, three times. 45 minutes will yield four poops. Another interesting thing is she always tends to poop in the same places. And another thing I noticed is she seems to read my body language. And if I'm trying to communicate with her not to poop somewhere, she will take that opportunity to assume her position. She looks at me sheepishly, almost sharing my embarrassment at what she is doing. So why, you might wonder, am I telling you this? Well, my goal on this podcast is to teach you about the world and let you into my brain a bit, which is a strange and wonderful place to be. So welcome. But there is another reason. I happen to live in the same neighborhood of the Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin. So maybe you know where this is going. I walk by her house almost every day. And as we approach, I always quicken the pace. I feel like if I can just get my dog Phoebe moving quickly, we can blow by the house without any uninvited fertilization of the lawn. I mean, it is the chancellor. Further down the block, my boss at the hospital has his house, and I always pause there, mustering every signal I can for Phoebe's myenteric plexus to stimulate the peristalsis. Like I try to make her think we are in a bookstore or a library. I mean, that always works for me. Doesn't that happen to you guys? Anyways, hopefully my boss isn't listening to this. But the Chancellor, that's a whole different story. Usually we get by without any problems. But every now and then, Phoebe starts to pull back, and I can see her thinking about taking the stance. And I just drag her along, back legs planted, picturing the Chancellor looking out her window, holding my promotion packet that is waiting for her signature, slowly shaking her head. Maybe, given that she is the Chancellor, or sometimes I think of her as the Supreme Chancellor, she is quietly reciting, Oh no, my young Jedi you will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. You want this, don't you? The hate is swelling in you now. Take your Jedi weapon. Use it. I am unarmed. Strike me down with it. Give in to your anger. With each passing moment, you make yourself more my servant. And then I yelled to Phoebe, It's a trap! Channeling my inner Admiral Akbar. Okay, sorry. That was weird. But I mean, come on. Weren't you thinking it too when you heard the term Chancellor? Okay, okay, let me get serious here. I can't believe I actually got the opportunity to have Chancellor Becky Blank on the set. I have had the chance to talk to Becky and see her work, and she is truly remarkable. I can't tell you how lucky we are to have her here in Wisconsin, and how lucky I am to have her as a neighbor. I don't think she's thinking the same thing. I mean, honestly, what was she thinking agreeing to do this podcast? Becky's accomplishments are truly legendary. 
and we will go over some of them in the podcast. But briefly, she became the Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin in 2013. She has alternated over her career uh, between being an academician and an economist working in administrations in D.C. Most recently, she served as Deputy Secretary and Acting Secretary of Commerce under President Obama. At Commerce, she oversaw nearly 45,000 employees and managed a $10 billion budget. Well, at least according to Wikipedia. And yes, Dad, Wikipedia is always right. Just to put this in perspective, I manage a lab with two employees, and I am totally overwhelmed. She was previously a member of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Bill Clinton. From 1998 to 2008, she was Dean and Professor of Public Policy and Economics in the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. She previously served on the faculty at Northwestern and Princeton Universities and was a fellow at the Brookings Institution, a nonprofit public policy research think tank in Washington, D.C. I mean, that's a lot of stuff. There's more, too, but let me leave some things for the interview. I really hope you enjoy this. I can tell you that in my preparation and our discussion, I learned so much about Becky's life, her background, how she has accomplished so much, and where she stands on a wide range of topics. Oh, and one more exciting thing. She told me it was okay for me to announce that she is officially appointing me as Barry Alvarez's successor as the athletic director at the University of Wisconsin. I think I sold her on it when I told her my plan to retrofit Camp Randall so that parkour will be played there in the fall rather than football. Parkour, parkour! Note the listeners, this introduction does not represent the opinions of UW Health, the Department of Surgery, the University of Wisconsin, the Chancellor, or really anyone. Please erase this podcast after listening. Okay, Becky Blank, welcome to the set. It's good to be here, Josh. It is so wonderful to have you here. I, I almost can't believe you agreed to come on, so. <laughs> Anything to get away from the pandemic, you say. Yeah, I guess that's office. a good point. I did want to clarify at the beginning, um, do you have the ability to fire me if this goes badly, or is that not part of <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably attend your professor and the answer is no. <laughs> okay, great. We'll stop with that. Well, I'd like to start with my guest just by asking where you grew up, you know, what kind of kid were you and what were the events that led you to follow the path you did? So I grew up around the Midwest. Born in Missouri, we uh, moved actually to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Oh, um, you're a Uber, huh? Yeah, my dad <laughs> was with the Extension Service up there in Northern Michigan. Oh. And then we moved down to East Lansing. And then when I was in sixth grade, we moved to uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. I went to junior high, high school and college, University of Minnesota in St. Paul. So um, I think of myself as having grown up in the Twin Cities because high school is where you sort of emerge into the world, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Were you always a good student? Uh, I was a very uh, good student. And, you know, I spent much of my childhood reading. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> you know, well, the library good. was my best friend. Yes. And you're still an avid reader, I understand. I, I love reading. Me, yeah. me too as well. So we're kindred spirits there. What did your parents do? Both of my parents were in the extension service. Um, I was very proud here at Wisconsin to bring the extension service back into UW-Madison. You know, it spun off independently in the late 60s. You know, my dad ended up working on um, uh, basically recreation um, and recreational development in northern and uh, Minnesota, uh-huh. uh, which is what he was doing up in northern Michigan as well. And my mom had been what was then called a home agent, which is an extension agent who works with women on cooking and sewing and, um, you know, oh, all, wow. all of the home arts. That particular job description has gone away yes, um, yes. in recent decades. But then after she had children, she didn't work for money again. Got you. Yeah. Now, what got you excited about becoming an economist? Was that something you thought about for years or did you stumble into that in college? You know, not at all. Like, you know, many um, good students who are girls, I assumed I wanted to be a teacher. 
Mm-hmm. Right. You know, what, what else are you going to do? Right. Um, right. And um, then I got into the debate in high school and had just a marvelous debate coach and a wonderful debate experience. And, you know, that really got me, you know, I was sort of a political nerd even before, in junior high, but that really got me into sort of policy and politics. I, I started off as an English major in college, but um, I, I took an economics course and within a semester, re-enrolled myself as an economics major. I think I was always slated to be a social science major. Uh, as I was preparing, I read a quote and I don't know who it's attributed to, but that you got early advice that if you know economics, you can make a difference in the world. Is that? Oh, yeah. My very first economics course was taught by um, a person who had been in Washington, D.C., had done, you know, some really great things out there. And he was wonderful at communicating that, you know, if you really wanted to be at the center of things, you know, if you were going to make a difference, you would be an economist. I, I bought a book <laughs> <laughs> I guess he was right, actually. Yeah. I don't know a ton about that field, um, but maybe there's some similarities in my own field. When you first started learning economics, were you thinking, I'm going to get into policy, I'm going to change the world? Or were you thinking, I'm going to be an academic and study and understand things? Or Well, you know, I, I still wanted to be a teacher. So I assumed I was going to be an academic, right? But, you know, my interest was policy. And economics is a discipline, which um, certainly at the time that I was in graduate school, had some very, very theoretical elements um, to it. Mm-hmm. And about two-thirds of my fellow graduate school students were in economics because they could play really neat mathematical mind games in economics. Right. And about a third of us were in economics because we were really interested in the real economy and policy stuff. Right. And that was an interesting differentiation between those two groups. But you know, It strikes me as similar to like physicists. Yeah. You can be like a theoretical physicist yeah. or yeah, exactly. a more practical. Yeah. And even in my own field, I'm in transplant surgery, but I do ba- mm-hmm. basic science. And you can be a real basic yes. scientist yes. or you can yes. translate, yes. Uh, which is the buzzword of the day, I suppose. Okay, so you got pretty into it. So you you got a degree in it in Minnesota and then went on and got a PhD at MIT. Is that I did. right? I did, in economics, yeah. Got you. And I think now, it would correct me if I'm wrong, but it your focus has really been on poverty. Is that fair well, to say? you know, I trained as a labor economist and I've written quite a few papers that are sort of labor markets in general and the interaction of labor markets with the macro economy. Um, probably the work that I'm best known for has related to income distribution and poverty and right. then the interaction of labor markets, poverty and um, government programs. So then the first part of your career after you finished your PhD, take me through that. You were really in academics at this point. Uh, yeah, uh, my first job was at Princeton University. Mm-hmm. Which is um, my alma mater. So. Alma mater <laughs> yes. yeah, and my husband's as well. Oh, yeah, right. Um, That's right. Yeah, I had a joint appointment between what was then the Woodrow Wilson School uh, yes. and the economics department. Right, it's not... It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's no longer, I think it's just the policy school. Yeah, for now, I think they haven't decided, right? And she'll go find another daughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that is true. <laughs> you know, I went back and visited MIT for a year. Um, then I, I got a really great tenured offer out of Northwestern University. So I took that. And that was also joint between Northwestern's policy program and its economics department. Uh, but before I started, I, I um, one of my faculty members from MIT called me up because he had just gone to work for George H.W. Bush mm-hmm. um, in the first year of that administration. And they were looking for senior staff economists in the Council of Economic Advisors, mm-hmm. which is the inside economic advising group to the White House. I sort of hesitated because I was not a registered Republican. And I called a couple of senior people and they said, of course, you're going to go do this. They want you as an economist. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But, you know. Um, and so I went and spent a year um, working as an economist inside the White House at that administration, which was a great experience mm-hmm. in many ways. 
and then went into a place heavy job at Northwestern. I got um, you. I was going to ask yeah. you that because I think you yeah. you had a few sh- a stints uh, as an economic advisor yeah. to presidents. Yeah. So is that it? Doesn't have to be political, or it doesn't have to align with your at the staff level. No. It, it, what, the, the next job I took was in the Clinton administration as a member of the council, and there are three council members. Janet Yellen was the chair. Oh, that okay. Point, so. You know, someone who has had quite a distinguished career. Yes, I would say. <laughs> and um, that was a uh, Senate-confirmed position, uh-huh. and you were a senior member sort of, of the White House staff. And in that case, your political affiliations mattered. And it mattered not just for the appointment to the job, but it mattered because, you know, you were going to be out on the hustings defending these policies. You were going to be deeply involved in making them. And you had to be in a world where you were in sync with the general direction of what the White House was doing and where it was going. doesn't mean you agree with everything, but you have to be willing when a decision is made to be out there and support it. And um, so, you know, your political affiliation really matters at that point. And then I I spent two years um, as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Clinton White House. And that's a full-time job? It's a full-time job. Got you, Absolutely, yeah. More than a full-time job. Yeah. (laughs) I got you. And are you free in that role to voice... Your opinions? No, no, okay. no. You're, you're a senior staff member of the White House, and I see. you know, and you. I mean, it's very interesting if you're an academic, because of course, as an academic, you can say anything. Um, and the worst thing you can ever do is have someone else write something and you put your name on it. When you move into, uh, you know, these senior positions inside um, government, and first of all, nothing is your opinion. And even if you say that it's your opinion, it will be taken as the opinion of the person you work for, mm. right? And, and so you've got to be very, very careful. But secondly, you've got this wonderful staff that writes all of these papers for you, and you just put your name on it. Oh, wow. That feels so strange right. to an academic. Right. right, in academics, that's sort of frowned upon. Right. I would say. Very frowned upon. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, God, there's so many things I can ask you about. So you've gone through actually a few confirmation processes. Yeah. What is that like? You know, the Senate confirmation process is long and variable and uncertain. In the uh, Clinton White House, I was held, you know, I was able to function in the job, but I was held up in confirmation for a full year mm. because of something that some senator was happy about with the Clinton administration. They wanted to show they were unhappy. They decided to pick someone they thought wasn't very important, you know, so they wouldn't gum up the works with anything. Right. So, you know, they picked me. Oh, and, my gosh. Uh, you know, finally, they got that hold listed a year in, so I was fully confirmed. And then um, in the Obama administration, I, I held two jobs there. I started as the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs, mm. which oversees uh, all of the um, both economic advice and analysis inside the Commerce Department, but also oversees the Census Bureau and the economic data agencies. And that's a set of confirmed job. And then I moved into Deputy Secretary, which is the number two job of the agency, which is essentially Chief Operating Chief Policy Officer for the agency. So I was confirmed again. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in that second confirmation, again, I was held up for reasons right. that had nothing to do with me. But <laughs> I've always assumed there was a lot of that yeah. gaming and politics. Yeah. And I assume they even talked to each other about, we're not going to block this person. So we're going to make this yeah. one harder. Yeah. Yeah. Is that an intimidating process or are you just kind of thick skinned and just accept it's part of the deal? Well, you know, you do go around and meet all of the people on the jur- committee of jurisdiction and, meet mm-hmm. with them, and then there's a hearing, right? And the hearing is usually pretty innocuous unless there's something that people are really unhappy about. Mm-hmm. And they'll often, take a number of people together and do like five people together in a hearing because they don't have time to do everyone separately. Right. So, you know, I, my first hearing as Undersecretary of Commerce, the nominee for the head of the Federal Aviation Agency, FAA, 
Um, and they're just in a plane crash in Western mm. New York. And so no one had any issues talking to the other four of us, you know, but they right. had lots of really hard questions for, for him. And you know, that, that was good, right? Yeah, right. You're, that's right. <laughs> you want that. Went right to Try to go right under the radar. Yeah. Do you think it makes sense that the economic advisors to an elected president needs to be confirmed? Is that... They've actually changed the CEA. There are three members of the council, right? Mm. Uh, and the chair is still a confirmed position, but the other two, they've now stopped being confirmed positions. Those are appointed positions, which makes a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah. right. I would think so. Yeah. I, I want to get back in your history, but yeah. let me just ask this. Like when you're on Bill Clinton's three-person team, does he come in and say, hey, guys, work? work through this or is it not like that? You stop by our office. We stop by here. Oh, you stop right. Okay, right. I guess I yeah. should have guessed that. He seems um, like a very gregarious guy, yeah, though, I imagine. Yeah. No, we, um, we met pers personally with the president, I would say, irregularly. Janet, the chair of the council, saw him more frequently. Mm. He was typically the chair who was brought in um, for to a lot of senior meetings. There, um, there was some major international financial problems going on in the late 1990s, and so she was quite involved in you know, a number of, you know, high level meetings on, on that issue with gotcha. Treasury and Defense and everyone else. So, you know, I, I saw him in events and I saw him, you know, in other meetings. When I was at Commerce, I probably saw President Obama a bit more, but then I was officially, I, I was for part of that time the acting secretary. Right. So right. got to a couple of cabinet meetings. Yes. You know, I want to dig into meetings with him. I definitely want to dig into your yeah. experience at Commerce, yeah. but let me back up. So I know you were at Northwestern for a while and then you, of course, made your way to Michigan, where you were mm -hmm. dean of the Ford School. How long were you at Northwestern? Oh, seven years. And then you went to Washington. I went to Washington for two years in the Clinton administration. And rather than returning to Northwestern, I, see. I was on leave. I took the job as dean at Michigan. Was it a hard decision to go to Washington? Were you like, mm, am I turning my back on academics or is it not like that? Well, you know, I, my, I first said no when they called me, but it wasn't because of that. I had had a baby like a year before. Uh, okay. So, you know, I was married. I had this very young child. We had, I had gotten funding two years earlier for this huge research mm -hmm. center, and we finally gotten it up and going and running. And so, like, every, you know, it's just, it was not a good time to be moving. Right, right. And um, I, I said, no, 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 I can't consider this. And, you know, and I, I will say, I, I, I'm quite pleased they called me back <laughs> and right. said, no, we really want to talk to you about this. At least give us a half day to come speak about this. Oh, and, I see. And they persuaded me to... Uh, to come out and do it, which I'm glad they did. You're glad, yeah. But, you know, it, I have to say, moving with a year old child that after you just yes. started, you know, it, it, it was the worst move of my life, but it was a good thing to do in the long run. Yes, and I'm <laughs> sure you were working hard yeah. in DC. Yeah. Did you know you'd leave that position and come back to academics? I mean, you've gone. Oh, well, yeah. I've always, you know, I'm an academic. You're an academic. Yeah. I've always known I'm coming back to universities, right? Okay, so then um, you made your way to Michigan, and you were there for a while, right? Uh, seven or eight years there as well. And um, you kind of built up this school of public policy, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, they had just created the school for what had been a small master's program. The previous, they had appointed an initial internal dean um, who then actually took a job with the Federal Reserve Board, so he left quite soon after that, and they then went into a search. And um, so I was able to come in sort of as the, that in some ways the dean to create the school, um, you know, I, when I read, they, they hadn't even moved tenure in for any of the faculty, you know. And, oh, yeah. um, so, you know, over that time, it was, it was really great. We had this great master's program. I, I worked for very closely for a long period of time to get approval to start an undergraduate program. We started these interdisciplinary PhD programs where we gave a public policy degree jointly with either sociology, political science or economics. I think we started four new research centers. We built a new building. Wow. You know, it was it was, it was really a, a fun period of 
you know, growing a new entity and being sort of creative and entrepreneurial inside of this very large and very well-respected university. You know, that, that was just fun. So you've done, you did very well there. Um, did they come calling again then? Or how did that end? How did that? Um, well, did, did you, you went from there. I went from there. And I actually took, I, I, I decided at the end of seven years, I think, it was beginning to feel, you know, it was very clearly time to start the next agenda for the next eight to 10 years. And either I was going to do that and stay or I was going to leave and they needed to hire the next team. I see. And I decided that, you know, I, I didn't see myself doing this for another seven to eight years. Yes, I see. Um, so I, I, I stepped down as dean. I took a year's leave and went to Brookings. You went to Brookings. And then while well. I was on leave at Brookings, I went into the Obama administration. Now, Brookings yeah. is a think tank. Um, is that a very different experience then than being... It's basically like being a researcher without students in classes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a pure research job with a lot more policy discussion going on around you. Is there more money to do research? or is No, it's actually you have to raise all your money. Oh, you, you do? Know, most of these. Yeah. Oh, now, Brookings, wow. that was not entirely true. Brookings actually had quite a nice endowment. So they would cover with your salary, but you were expected to raise money at Brookings. I see. Yeah. And then you're free to work on anything you anything want at Brookings? Want. Yeah. But you probably know you're not going to be there forever. There are people who've been at Brookings for mm, Interesting. <laughs> interesting. So you were at Brookings for, what, one or two years? Uh, yeah, it was about a year and a half. And after that is when you went to Into, Commerce? Yeah, I went to the Department of Commerce as the undersecretary. For and that was an Obama appointment? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you spent, uh, you did a lot of things there. It sounds like you were essentially CEO of Commerce. You were acting head a yeah, few so different I, times. Yeah, so I was there four years. I stayed for the full, first full four-year term, first term which I hadn't necessarily expected going in. Again, mm -hmm. I always assumed I'm going to go back to being an academic. And, you know, I, I came in as the undersecretary. And the biggest part of that job at that point, it was 2009, and the 2010 census was starting. I must say, doing oversight, the Census Bureau reported into me, during oversight and getting involved with the census was the single largest and most interesting project I've ever done in my life. I mean, you, you have to count every person in the United States, and you can't count 95% and you can't count 99.9, .9, you have to count everyone. And the it is the largest deployment that the U.S. does every time outside of, you know, whatever military mm -hmm. things we're doing. You know, and just the, you know, we hired 800,000 people in a year, stood them up, put them to work, and pulled them down again. Oh um, you know, it's just it's an amazing um, enterprise, and I learned it. Um, it's so this. interesting yeah. because as the average person out yeah. there, you hear about the census and yeah. you kind of roll your eyes and think whatever, but it's really important, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, this is basically what determines not just the redistricting of, you know, how many congressional seats people have, but it's also, um, you know, businesses use this to determine where they locate their, their, you mm. know, their, their, their new plants or their, their new McDonald's facilities and um, local um, governments use it to decide how many students are coming into the schools, where do we put a hospital, you know, all of these decisions are based on census data. It's incredibly important to get it right. So it's really critical. Yeah. Was the time at Commerce fun? Was it painful? Is it frustrating? Like, how do you, I mean, you have like 45,000 employees and a huge budget. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. So, you know, I did this undersecretary thing and when the census was coming to an end, um, the deputy secretary job came open and they asked me to fill it on an interim basis and then ultimately mm -hmm. I got appointed to that and then ultimately the secretary left and I ended up as the acting secretary for a year. I would say that being in the cabinet, much less being a deputy secretary in number two in one of these departments, is an honor. I learned a huge amount about running a very large public agency, you know, interfacing between lots and lots of stakeholders. Um, you know, it was just it was intellectually a really interesting job and commerce, people don't realize this, it's 
you know, and more of a science agency than anything else. Mm. It includes NOAA and all of the coastal work. It includes the Weather Bureau. Right. It includes all of the census. It includes the Patent Office. It has NIST, the National Institute of Standards in it. Right. And then it has the international um, trade agencies in it as well. So, you know, as an academic knowing something about universities, it was actually a great agency to run because it's all about data and research in many ways, and then outreach to particularly the business and governmental communities. And that was a great job. Right. But, but it's a very political job. And again, I always assumed I would be back to being at a university. Somewhere. Yeah, right. It's interesting because you have um, the appointed people, the academic people, mm-hmm. and then you have the elected mm-hmm. people as well. Is there a good interface between those two groups? The most important thing you can do as a senior level appointed political you know, as a political appointee in these jobs, is make sure that you understand how good the civil service is and work with them closely because they're the ones who actually have the knowledge. You know, they are there. They're going to be there before, they're there before you. They're going to be there after mm-hmm. you. And if you want to get something done, you've got to work with them collaboratively. And you have to understand that they are your people and your best bet at getting anything done. And, you know, part of my is sometimes political appointees don't understand that. They're a little suspicious of the civil service. And, you know, they don't get much done under those circumstances. Right. <laughs> right. I can totally see that. I also, like, it feels like with the increasing polarization that we have in Washington that it just must be harder and harder to get lasting things done. I suspect that's true. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things I liked about Commerce is, you know, it was an agency that had more bipartisan support. I wasn't caught in the culture wars in commerce the way that I think some other agencies mm. are, um, you know, that, that, that made it a more attractive place for me to be. <laughs> gotcha. Did you have a, a lot of interactions with Obama? Like you were in his cabinet meetings when you were, uh, yeah, you know, there were a lot of cabinet meetings. I think this is true of almost any president uh, these days. Um, you know, I certainly did see him, you know, I, I have to say I have enormous respect for this man I was honored to work for him every day. I feel similar. I didn't work for him, but I have enormous respect for him. You stayed for four years there, and I think you probably knew you were going to come back to academics. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end of that, you went from there to our institution, mm-hmm. University of Wisconsin, as chancellor. Is it true you were a finalist for that job a few years before? Did I have I- been. I actually applied for that job um, as I was leaving the uh, Ford School. You know, it's not a surprise. I think I didn't get it. I've been running quite a small you know, organization inside Michigan. Michigan's uh-huh. a good school, but, you know, the Ford School is quite a tiny place. You know, I was probably a little surprised to be the finalist list, but, <laughs> you know, but, you know, and then when this was available again, I had a very different background of experience. And, right. you know, remember I called the search firm and said, you know, I was a finalist before. Is that going to work for me or against me? He said, oh, no, you should apply again. So I did. Did you jump at the opportunity? Was it a no-brainer or did you have to really? Well, you know, I admit I was applying for a number of jobs uh-huh. at that point. And, you know, Wisconsin was particularly attractive. Partly, I knew the, I knew the institution if I hadn't been there. I mean, I've been at Wisconsin a lot. I, a lot of colleagues here. I'm from the upper Midwest, you know, and in these leadership jobs, cultural fit matters. You know, I, I think, you know, I was interviewing with a Southern university at about the same time. And, you know, it was just a really strange place that, you know, and the way, you know, I remember thinking, you know, I'm really going to have to learn this culture. I didn't feel that way at Wisconsin. And, and that really helps when you're coming into a big job like that. Right. Yeah. Did you look at, I was going to ask you this later, but did you look at any private institutions or were you kind of dead set on a state flagship state school or? I talked to some private institutions at that point when I was looking around, but you know, all else equal, I, I'm really interested in the public management issues. And in some ways, these public institutions are far more interesting. They're more challenging, Mm -hmm. but they're also more intellectually engaging. You've got a lot more stakeholders. You know, you've got to navigate your way through the political waters um, and they serve the state in a way that the private institutions don't. They're access institutions. 
you know, even places like UW Madison, the number of students who are first year, first first generation students um, coming here is still very high. And right. you know, you, running that type of a place with the service that you were doing to the public is, is you know, is an important part of the job. Right. It's I mean, it's such a very different mission than well, I picked Princeton because I went there and you were there. They have this. Yeah. I mean, it's just totally different. They also have this huge endowment. Princeton was a culture I'd never felt completely comfortable in. It's, they got a lot of gender issues still going on. Yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Um, OK, so you came here in 2013. Oh, it's been a while already. It's, it's funny. It's, it's a little scary to look, realize that I, you know, time flies. I know I've seen you around for a while, but when I started yeah. researching, I thought it was going to be like yeah. four years yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been a while. Um, has it been uh, harder than you thought, better than you thought? I mean, a lot has happened in the last... The institution is an absolutely great place, and the level of commitment of faculty and staff to this are golden, right? The, uh, the quality of the faculty and the staff and the students are just wonderful. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it, it's, it's a great place to be in that sense. Um, and, of course, our donors are great, um, our, our alumni. You know, the politics has been harder than I think I would have hoped for. I don't think that's unique to Wisconsin. I think every public university president, and I talk with them regularly, would say, gosh, the I wish the politics were right. here. You right. know, it's just sort of in the air right now, suspicion about higher ed and attacks on universities. But in some ways, that makes the job all the more important because defending this place and making sure it comes through this particular period of time, financially stable and whole and with the reputation that it's had for the last 150 years, that's an important thing to defend. I was wondering how political your job is because, um, you know, you have the state university and this mission to to train and uh, the most diverse yeah. group of people possible, represent all views. You have to get money from the legislature and the governor. Well, you know, whenever you're at a university, you have to represent all views. I and mean, it's partly mm -hmm. what a university is about is that every thought at a university is thinkable. And, you know, that's just sort of a mind-blowing thing right. because there's very few places where that's true. And then debatable. And then you bring evidence and you may disprove some thoughts, right? But, you know, it's, it's never inappropriate to raise an idea. And um, that makes universities very different from most other places in society and always suspicious. You know, there's a reason why autocrats close the universities first, right? Because right. they don't want people thinking those thoughts. Right. Right? That's right. Um, so defending that and keeping, you know, it, 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 and public universities, forgetting the particular moment we're in right now, have always been under attack. And we can tell stories back here from the very thing where the sifting and winnowing quote came from was an attack on one of our faculty where um, the legislature, the board of regents, some of the board wanted to fire this person because of things he was saying about socialism that they didn't like, right? And that was 100 and what, 30 years oh, ago. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. So, uh, you know, th there's, there's nothing new here about having to navigate difficult waters as a public university. But, you know, as I say, the institution is worth it. I think about this a lot, the importance of representing all sides, um, but really teaching how to understand truth and facts. And mm -hmm. it's kind of particularly scary right now we're at a moment right now where people, both the dismissal of what I would think to be standards of proof is very high, whether that's around physical sciences or, mm. you know, other forms of, of reasoning. The unwillingness to entertain alternative views of the world, right? Simply dismiss them because I'm on this side and you're on that side. Right. Um, and, and therefore, rather than having a civil dialogue in the middle, you know, it becomes a shouting match. Um, and you see that, you know, our students have not experienced a civil dialogue at the national level, you know, during the time they've been growing up. And one of the things we need to teach them is what does that mean? That doesn't mean you have to agree with your opponents or give in to them, but it does mean that 
you, you do have to occasionally listen and engage in debate and engage in it without shouting. And the social media world does not help this. It doesn't provide us with very good examples. Yes, I agree. But but the university, this all universities have a real role in this, don't they? They do indeed, and a real stake in this. Do you think they've, in general, done a good job? And let me just cite an example. Uh, certainly, um, you'll hear from some uh, conservative voices that universities haven't represented their views. What do you say to that? Well, you know, it is true that universities have probably, if you you know, if you simply look at political affiliations of faculty, right? This is what some people mm -hmm. look at. That universities have moved a little further to the left than they were in relative to the rest of society than they were probably 40, 50 years ago. And, you know, we can talk about what the reasons for that are. I mean, in part, I think, a, you know, a sustained attack on science out of certain groups on the right has necessarily driven large number of scientists who would have been utterly apolitical 30, 40 years ago into feeling that they have to take political sides. Right. And, you know, that's that's a very dangerous thing for yes. university. So, you know, politics hasn't helped this. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I don't know any university that doesn't have a representation from across the board. Now, there are always some very loud voices yeah. um, on, you know, with particular political views. And that's appropriate types. You know, say universities, you can argue anything you want to argue. But, you know, we have someone out of our universities running as a Republican for the um, for the attorney general's seat. You know, we've got a number of research centers that are funded by more conservative groups. And this is still a diverse place. Let's put it that way. Right. Uh, you know, we do a climate survey every so often here, trying to ask students, you know, well, is this a place you feel comfortable? Would you come again? Would you, a number of questions like that. And, you know, the, <laughs> the last time we did this, I think, was three years ago. And you, asked, you wanted to ask me, you know, and we do ask people, you know, what's your race? What's your gender? Are you an international student? We ask them about their political and religious affiliation at the very end of the survey. And the group that comes out with the highest satisfaction levels for being here at the university are white male conservatives. <laughs> so, you know, I say that to the legislators. It <laughs> wouldn't be true if this were a place where you couldn't be a white male conservative. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> that supports that right there. <laughs> well, let me um, ask you a few uh, more specific questions. I was looking through, you've written a bunch of books. I think what your first one was, It Takes a Nation and a New Agenda for Fighting Poverty. That was a really big book um, talking about the role of government mm -hmm. in fighting poverty. Then you had another book called Is the Market Moral? Is it? <laughs> it's a terrible question, I know, but... Well, the market by itself is pretty amoral. I think the question is, what structures do you want to put around it? Because as a society, you care about certain things that the market itself may not value or care about. Yeah, that um, that actually came out, but it was a really interesting um, project where it's myself and um, I, I come out of a very strong sort of liberal Protestant background. And um, the, the, the book is a series of conversations between myself and a conservative Catholic, mm. and you know, where do we agree and where do we disagree? And it, it was fascinating to write that book. It was fun. It's gotten some interest. It sounded. It sounds fascinating. I haven't read the whole book. Yeah, I have to admit. Yeah. <laughs> I was watching a talk you gave. I think you were here at Wisconsin, but you gave it back at the Ford Center. I think it was 2014, if I'm getting it right, and it was on inequality. And I thought it was a really fascinating talk. You kind of talked about a little bit about the American story, some of the myths, the, ch the challenges, the lack of mobility, and really talked a lot about inequality and, and talked about how it doesn't really get talked about. Poverty does, but not so much inequality. And it's never been quite clear what are the practical ways to address it. You, in the talk, talked about how you had some pessimism about our ability to do something about it. And I think we all know there's been a lot of divergence of the richest and the poorest. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, look what happened with COVID with yeah. some of the, the five tech companies that have just exploded. Then you see the speech that Biden just gave and some of the plans he's trying to push through with, I, I would say his speech really was about inequality, although I don't know that he used the word. Do you agree and do you still feel pessimistic or where are you on that? The political agreement that is required to do some of the things that would offset the rise in inequality in this country will be hard. Right. And I do think that President Biden has proposed some things that I would surely support, particularly some of his child allowance mm -hmm. ideas. Much of this will require America accepting a somewhat higher tax burden. That's, you know, we have the lowest taxes of any of the industrialized countries, pretty much, and have always been quite happy to mm -hmm. be there. In fact, you know, the, the impulse is always to cut taxes further. But, you know, if you want to address inequality, you want to do two things. One, you want to create opportunities for people who do not, it may not have the same level of education, the same level of opportunity, and try to provide those opportunities so that you have a higher, more productive workforce, right? And you don't have a group of people who are left behind. You know, that requires all sorts of things around education and, and labor markets and, you know, healthcare and mm. that's how, you know, th things that basically equalize the opportunity set for folks. But then that's a very long-term process. And you probably have to think about some more immediate redistribution as well. And of course, you then have these series of big external events, whether they're pandemics or financial collapses, which um, for no fault of their own, numbers of people find themselves in very deep financial trouble. So you need some safety net programs there as well. And all of that requires a level of spending. And we could argue about whether it should be solely government spending, whether it should be shared with the nonprofit sector. There are a lot of ways to do this. But it does require a commitment that in the United States, we have almost never been willing to make. You know, we've been much more the, well, you know, sink or swim, you're on your own. Mm. And um, our safety nets remain relatively minimal compared to other countries. You know, maybe the economic collapse of 10 years ago, combined with the economic collapse around this pandemic, will be enough to actually change mindsets and get people more willing to think more about some some of these programs. I would love to believe that. Certainly, the Great Depression and the you know, yeah. years of disaster is what it took, I think, to create Social Security and unemployment insurance in this country. I was um, going to say, I mean, yeah. wasn't that one period with yeah. FDR and maybe yes. the one period where, you, yes. where we did do yes. that? Yeah. Yes, and it was a time when, you know, you could see a lot of people who you knew who lived down the street yes. who were facing utter destitution, and it wasn't because they weren't hard workers. And so people's willingness to say, yeah, you know, we really ought to do something about that was greater. You know, maybe we're at that moment again now. Yeah, I wonder because obviously I'm not old enough to, to know what it was like yeah. back then. It feels to me like we're so polarized now in a yeah. way that I've never experienced. I'm sure there were a lot of people who were... Very, very firmly disagreed with Mr. Roosevelt. Right, and did not oh, want yeah. to pay taxes. But you did not have the same... You know, I, I, you know, and I think the partisanship just makes it much harder right now. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, if you ask me, am I optimistic? I'm not. I am hopeful. I think you have to be hopeful. And, you know, I, I you know, you can look at what I've done with my life. You know, I yes. believe in working on the margins. Let's make things a little bit better and let's keep trying to do Once you do that, let's make the next thing a little better. I don't know that we're going to be in a moment of major transition here. The world is, the country's too polarized. Yeah, I agree. And the, and with that, the way people are getting different facts and getting their information, how do you get a message across that people will believe? Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, Biden and I was listening to a podcast today with Chuck Schumer and they believe if they can pass these things, people will just see that their lives are better. It could absolutely go the other way. It could. The midterms, they could lose all yeah. power and this will be a failed 
yeah. experiment. Well, I mean, you could take the, um, the, the so-called Obamacare expansion, which, you know, provided insurance coverage to some 20 million people who did not have it. I mean, unambiguously in the data, this had a huge positive, I mean, you can see the positive impact on health as well in, in a number of research uh, that's been done here. But, you know, even among those who were taking advantage of it, there was opposition, <laughs> you know, it was, it, it was a right. fascinating set of arguments. I mean, you're in the middle of that in healthcare. Yeah, people who benefited from the most were opposed to. I know it's totally yeah. true, and I think there are a lot of examples of that in history, also, yeah. like Medicare coming around, and mm-hmm. yeah, the people people always find ways to. Yeah, yeah I don't want to get heavily into healthcare because it feels like we do some great things and some terrible things. I guess is another topic. Unfortunately, not an expert. A whole another topic. <laughs> Let me ask you. I know this yeah. is a topic you've spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about student debt. Would you support the idea of trying to get rid of student debt up up to some number? If you look over the last 40, 50 years in this country, we debt finance a whole lot more now than we did then. People borrow a higher share to finance their houses. They certainly did at least prior to 2009. Mm-hmm. People buy, borrow a much higher share to finance their cars. Many people fully debt finance cars. So, you know, it's not surprising that people are debt financing college at a higher rate. I mean, just people's ha- financial habits have changed. You know, the problem with college is you've got people at age 18 and 19 making loan and debt decisions with no idea of quite what their life is going to be like, what jobs they're going to be in, what their income's going to look like. You know, a number of those people are not very financially able um, in terms of thinking through those issues. So you get a small share of people who make very bad decisions about that and borrow way too much. And we don't have any guardrails around that. Mm. You know, I don't know what my students are borrowing. I mean, right. I, I, people say, well, you should do something about this. Just, they can go out and do this. It's, you know, I, I, right. they don't come from me. The university <laughs> isn't involved in this. The chancellor doesn't yeah. approve all the... No, I mean, they're just financial aid. I and mean, this is an individual and family decision mm. that they do separately from the university. And, um, you know, we will help them if they come to us, but they don't have to come to us for that. You know, on the other hand, large numbers of people finance an education they could not other get, otherwise get with this. And if you look at the economic returns to a college degree, they are higher now than they have ever been at any point that we have tried to measure those returns. And if you have to borrow ten or twenty thousand dollars to finance a college degree, that is a very good thing to do. I can, you know, I can tell you that almost right. unambiguously, the returns to college are somewhere between the eight hundred to a million dollars over your lifetime. And you know, would you borrow ten to twenty to get that return? You know, the answer ought to be yes. The problem is, there's some bad actors out there. Right. Um, there are some, particularly some of the for-profit schools that have really encouraged people to borrow for and then not help them complete their degree and get large money. The people who are in the worst shape are people who borrow, start a degree, and then never finish it. So they've got the debt and they don't have the return, right? right. So it's an interesting world in that large numbers of people with relatively small amounts of borrowing are those in the deepest trouble. A lot of people who borrow more, medical students have the highest borrowing rates of anyone yeah, in the country. Right. They all pay it back. There's almost no default off of that. Right. Um, you know, they go out and get, by and large, very high-paying jobs, and they complain about it, but they pay yeah. it back, right? And it was probably worth it to them. Right. It may um, affect yeah. the decision they make and, like, what special they, yeah. they go into, but yeah. but you're right. So. Yeah, so the question is how you deal with this, and this mm-hmm. is hard. I mean, there are a lot of people who borrow small and, you know, relatively reasonable amounts and get value to that. And I don't think you want to cancel debt across the board. There'd be a lot of middle- and high-income earners who would get a windfall gain from that, and right. they ought to pay their debt back. They're, you know, made, they're getting good incomes. They're, you know, right, right. Um, and then there are people who have debt and they can't. And I think what you want to do is somehow calibrate debt to um, to earning power, mm-hmm. right? So 
you know, I'm a strong believer in trying to do things to relieve debt for, say, people who are going to become public school teachers or people who are going into social work or people who are going into certain um, types of, uh, of government jobs or, you know, people who get medical degrees but want to go out into rural areas right. and practice at very low salaries, right? I think you want something more nuanced in terms of debt right. relief than just across-the-board debt relief. You know, yeah. that's going to help more quite well-to-do people than it will poor people. Right, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Or maybe yeah. even having some of these um, domestic cores where people mm -hmm. can work after the... Mm -hmm. I would just say this, but in double masses, one thing I'm really proud of yeah. here. On average, about a third of the our students graduate across the country with zero debt. At UW-Madison, 57% of our graduating seniors last year graduated with zero debt. And their default wow. rate was under 1%, whereas the national average is 11%. That says that an average yeah. debt levels among those who had debt um, were below the average for the state and for the nation. Mm. And it says that here our students are taking out reasonable amounts of debt, they're getting jobs, and they're repaying it. You know, there's not a debt problem by and large. That's not to say there's some students who get in trouble. I'm sure of that. Everyone who borrows is not a disaster. That's, <laughs> I think, the way to say it, right? Gotcha. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Let me ask you one question about athletics at college. Yeah. I've gotten to learn quite a bit. I know. I, I know it's been announced that Barry Alvarez is retiring from yeah. athletic director, yeah. and he's been kind of a legend on this mm -hmm. in Madison forever. Um, I love Big Ten sports. I love watching yeah. our teams. At the same time, there's a lot of debate about, you know, do we have the balance right with athletics mm -hmm. in universities? You know, should athletes be yeah. paid is another hot topic. How do you think we're doing with athletics at, at universities in general? You know, I, I don't think you'll find a president who doesn't worry about the growth of sort of big money athletics inside of universities and colleges. And of course, mm -hmm. a lot of that is driven by these media contracts that have poured a lot of additional money, particularly into the top conferences right. and the top schools. That's created, you know, it's created some benefits and opportunities, and it's also created problems and made inequities between your revenue sports, your non-revenue sports greater. In theory, you know, I, I certainly believe that there's a value to having some form of sports programs on college campuses. You know, we have art programs, we have music programs. There's, you know, sports mm -hmm. programs are not different from that in right. some way, right? right. Um, they take a certain amount of training and balance. And you watch some of these people who are just talking their sports and it's, it's very ballet-like, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. you know, it's, just, it's wonderful to watch. You know, the question is, how do you support them and what do you ask of the students? And, are, and how do you make sure these are student athletes, not athletes who happen to occasionally walk through a class or two, right? right? And, you know, one thing that I think Barry has done very well is that he has cared more than anything else about the well-being of our student athletes, as a, and which doesn't say he doesn't care about how they perform in the field, but he also has clearly cared about, are they getting the support, both academically as well as in coaching and mental health services that, that they need? And, you know, that's sort of been the hallmark of Wisconsin is we care about the overall well-being of our students, even while we also do very well in the field, mm. right? You right. know, we can do both and, right. and, and it's the right way to do student athletics. But there are a lot of big questions out there and it, 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 it's hard. It is hard. What do you say to those who say they want to be paid? I suppose the, if you're at a school that's not caring about your well-being and is yeah. making a lot of money off you, you can make a good argument for that versus... Yes, yeah, so, you know, I believe very strongly that if you're going to have a student athlete program, they've got to be a student athlete program. And I know there are those who disagree with this, but... You know, if you want to be a paid athlete, you should go into professional athletics. Mm -hmm. What I do not think the university should be running is a professional athlete program. Mm -hmm. And paid athletes is a professional athlete program, right? And it puts all the incentives on what you're doing on the field and takes all the incentives off the student side. 
that to me is not something I'm interested in running at a university. I don't think the university should be running it. Always a tough topic, I it's think. It's a tough that, topic, right. Um, and there will be those who vehemently disagree with what I just said. <laughs> I know, I was curious. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as a chancellor, you have to respond to all of these things and know that you yeah. can stir up. The other thing I'd say about athletics, yeah. people do not understand the financial model here. Right. So think about the whole university. There are a number of things that we want to support here. And they are ships in their own bottom. So I don't um, say to the classics department, um, gosh, you are bringing enough money and I guess I'm going to let you go. Mm -hmm. um, but the engineering school, you're doing great. No, I mean, I actually do regular redistribution across the university with some of my resources so that I can support a range of things that I think are make the university as a university whole. Some of them are self could be self-supporting. Some of them can't. That doesn't mean right. they are less important. You have to support them. We do the same thing with athletics, right? You know, I'm not interested in just running a football team for a whole set of reasons. And you want to run the whole set of Olympic sports. And, you know, so we have a thousand students who benefit from our athletic programs. And many of them will testify that this is, they learn an enormous amount by doing this, you know, well beyond just what happens in right. the classroom. And the only way we can do that is that we cross subsidize from revenue sports to non-revenue sports, just like I cross subsidize from programs that raise right. money to programs that don't across the rest of the university. And if indeed I had to put all of my money back into my revenue sports only, I would lose all of the other sports. And then I don't think we'd have a yeah. reason to run this. Right. That's it. I mean, our hospitals yeah. are microcosm yes. of this. You know, some specialties yes. make a lot of money, yeah. some don't, but we have yeah. a mission to provide yeah. Yeah. health. Just a couple more questions. Yeah. I, I'm curious to ask, can you describe, like, what is your average day as a chancellor like? Is it a bunch of meetings? Is it travel? Like, what is your average? Yeah, well, you know, this year's been strange. Yeah, right. right. Let's not week. talk about this. I mean, uh, uh, it's uh, easier to describe a month than a week. Yeah. Um, I'm usually on the road in one form or another, at least one week out of every month. And that's usually not a full week. It's like, I'll go to Milwaukee for one day and I'll go to DC for two uh -huh. days. And, you know, I have a one day trip to New York and, you know, that, that, that type of thing. You know, so I'm away usually about a week. I try to spend at least one day every week fully on internal meetings where I, you know, our executive team meets, I meet one-on-one -on -one with my main members of my executive team, you know, and so that every night I try to preserve Tuesdays for internal meeting days, mm -hmm. right? You know, and then there's all the extra things happening around campus that need my attention. No one ever calls on me when things are going fine. <laughs> right, it's only when right. there's either something completely new happening or something that's a problem. Yes. And then you've got meetings and things around what do we need to know and where are we and right. what are we going to do? And then there's all the other um the public stuff and public stuff is everything from going to talk to a department to, um, you know, giving talks at a major conference to meeting with alumni to going down to the legislature to doing an interview with the press. You know, that's probably, you know, a third of my time is, if not more, is public outreach of mm -hmm. that sort. You know, there's no one who can do that other than the chancellor for many of those situations. Right. right? I like how you said that. No one, yeah. It's the same in my job. No one ever calls say, all oh, your patients are great and everything's wonderful, right? <laughs> Every call is something you're going to have to... It's a problem. It's a problem. Yeah. That's yeah. a tough reality, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so last few questions. I know you're an avid reader. Do you do you veer towards fiction or nonfiction or both? You know, I um, read fiction almost every night. It's sort of like, yeah, you know, it's a, as long as I get an hour before I go to bed to read, <laughs> it's a fine day. When that hour gets taken up, I get grumpy. Right. But I, I do tend to read fiction. Oh, that's um, interesting to hear. You know, I, I read biography if I read nonfiction. Right. But, Any uh, exciting books you've recently read or reading right now? Well, you know, the best books that I have read over the last few years are the three Hillary Mantle books about Thomas mm -hmm. Cromwell. Mm -hmm. You know, Cromwell was not necessarily the most uh, admirable person, but 
just, you know, these books do this wonderful job describing how he negotiates his way between these very difficult political factions and, mm-hmm. and gets things done. And, I, you know, I, I just, and she just writes them. I mean, it sounds like you're in the room with, right. with this. You know, I, I, they're, they're wonderful books. I can yeah. see you lighting up when you yeah. talk about it. I, it's funny, at baseline, I would veer towards nonfiction, but I try to do yeah. every other because I know, yeah. well, the best writing, I think, is yeah. in fiction. Yeah. So, um, I, two last questions. One, um, like, what do you what do you want at the end of the day your imprint to be on this university? I mean, it's a really tough question, yeah. but are you able to answer it? Well, I mean, the, the very short answer is I want to leave the university better when I leave than it was when I came. I think I've had a major effect on financial stability around this university in a variety of ways. And that shows in terms of what's happened with improvements in faculty salaries and improvements in scholarship dollars and, you know, all sorts of other things of that sort. Secondly, I would like to believe that I have expanded the um, access of this university to large numbers of people. I'm particularly proud of the Bucky's Tuition Promise, which um, mm-hmm. is really aimed at lower income Wisconsin students and says, you've got free college here. You can come, if you can get admitted here, you don't have to pay any tuition. Now, you know, we'll help you with other things as well, because obviously mm-hmm. there's more cost than just tuition. That's worth a lot. I mean, the, you know, I could go on, but those are the two that I care most about. Yeah. Right. Let me, is, it a, is it a fun job? Most days. <laughs> most days it is. <laughs> there were some days this last year that were not fun, but yeah. yeah. No, it, it is. And it's probably because it's just such a great university. And, you know, you know, I can get very frustrated by some of the things going on elsewhere, but then yeah. you just wander around and either you talk to students or you talk to faculty or you, you call up a department and say, can I come over and talk to yeah. the faculty? That's just fun, right? You know, Tell me what you're working on. Yeah, gosh. right. You know, and, and, and it's always interesting. That's <laughs> funny. That strikes yeah. me. All the great labs or groups yeah. I've worked in, the head yeah. person will come walking through yeah. and just yeah. and do something yeah. like that. I purposely didn't get into COVID because, A, you've talked so much about it, and B, it's sort of this unique year. Yeah. That's for another yeah. podcast. So the last question I like to end on, what advice do you give to young people, regardless of what they're going into, whether it's from lessons you've learned or regrets you have or successes? Is there any, any message you'd like to give to young people? I guess the first is do try to figure out what you're passionate about because you're going to spend a lot of time in your work life. And it's a lot more fun in your work life if you're doing something that you're rather passionate about rather than if you're doing it just for the money. And if you find something you're passionate about, don't worry about the money, go do it. There are things that don't pay, right? Yeah, that right. You do have to think about that. But, um, you know, particularly as a young person, don't look at salaries. Look at look at what you're going to learn and where your interests are. The, the, the other thing I'd say is I certainly did not start out planning to be a university president at all. I mean, I was going to be a teacher and then I decided, yeah. well, I'll do research too and become an economist. And, you know, and then I started running a research center. And these opportunities have come along where people call and say, do you come, can you come to Washington for a year? And they're never convenient, right? right? right. You, you always want to say, well, no, I've got other things going on. I don't have time, right? Um, or, you know, we want to talk to you about being a dean. They say, well, no, I wasn't really thinking about that. I've got, you know, I, it's going to go back to Northwestern. And keep yourself open to things you weren't expecting and um, say yes to them sometimes because risks are worth taking and they'll get you places you may not have known you wanted to go, but can really be a great deal of fun when you get there. Yeah, I mean, when I, I told you it was the last question, but when I look yeah. at your career, it's followed such an interesting line. You've gotten to do so many different things. I'm sure it's not how you drew it out. You must look back yeah, on it and no, think, oh, no, my gosh. No. <laughs> I, I've never plotted out my career. Yeah. You know, I know people who try to do that, and I always sort of roll my eyes at it. But if you're doing something you love and doing it well, opportunities will come along in most cases. Yes. Right? Well, Becky, thank you yeah. so much. This has been really wonderful. Um, 
it's been so fun to talk to you and I'm amazed with the things you've done and uh, it's going to be an interesting few years going forward, I think. So. It will be. And thank you, Josh, for everything you do here at the university. You're one of our star people here. So. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks again. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. <laughs>